Hello, welcome to another new episode of Science Shambles. This episode was recorded at the Latitude Festival in the summer, actually recorded on July 20th, uh, the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. The panel is uh, chaired by Robin Ince and features Helen Chersky, Kevin Fong and Susie Imber. This is another one of the panels or talks or discussions that we recorded directly after a performance of the comedy play Signals, which is all about searching for alien life. Uh, there's two dates left of uh, the Signals UK tour, so if you want to catch that uh, and the team from Footprint Theatre, two chances left to do that. October 25 at the Norwich Science Festival and then the following week in Sheffield. You can go to cosmicshambles.com slash signals for those details. And while you're there, check out everything else that's going on at the Cosmic Shambles Network, new blogs and podcasts and live events and videos and everything else. And perhaps stop by our Patreon, patreon.com slash bookshambles to pledge uh, as little as a dollar a month uh, to support everything we do at the Cosmic Shambles Network. And a quick reminder that Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People is on the horizon, our annual Massive science, comedy, music, poetry, variety nights, all for charity, all hosted by Robin. Lots of guest speakers and performers at those, including Helen Chersky and Grace Petrie and Josie Long and Jim Al-Khalili and Matt Parker and Simon Singh and many, many more. Cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons has got all of the dates and tickets for those five shows in London, one of which is a family matinee for the first time, and then two up at the Lowry in Salford. Hope to see you there. In the meantime, let's get on to this week's episode. A quick note just before the episode starts. We had a, uh, a slight problem with the recording equipment at Latitude, which means uh, we missed the first two to two to three minutes of this episode. So apologies for that, but uh, we join Robin and Helen and Kevin and Susie as they just started to talk about their favourite, favourite's probably the wrong word, but their most memorable interactions with moon landing conspiracy idiots. And, and, and you weren't there, so I don't think it happened, and he got a bit upset about that. Okay. It's a, it's a, and also the fact, you know, Germany agreed to be in on it as well, in the same way as the Russian yeah. government, the moon Hundreds hoax of thing. thousands of people complicit in it, and the other side had to be complicit in it as well. It's the same thing. I, and it's in lots of people's interest to pretend that we were once good enough to win the World Cup. But I once met someone brilliant, who a, a, a taxi driver, who um, he spent 20 minutes telling me the moon landings were faked, and then it turned out he thought the second one was real. He just thought the first one had been fake, which is a brilliant way of dealing with the, you know, cognitive dissonance. You can I, have I met both someone who thinks that it's actually we merely projected a hologram from our base on Mars. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> Susie, you, you've you've had one as well. You, you yeah. had someone who, whose uh, take on the moon was quite yeah, idiosyncratic. That was, that was, sadly, we were cycling and we were going at the same speed, so I couldn't escape the conversation. And and he was convinced that the moon was hollow, which was new on me. So he was saying, "Tell me scientifically why the moon isn't hollow." And I was sort of trying to describe why the moon isn't hollow but then it transpired that also titanic didn't sink and all these other things and then i eventually just had to pretend i had a puncture and stop and get out of the conversation basically but it's it's a sad the, the thing reason that i find that sometimes quite sad uh, dealing with these things is uh, hopefully some of you will have read carl sagan's wonderful final book demon haunted world in which he talked about being picked up by a driver 
who, when he found out Carl Sagan was a scientist, all he wanted to talk about was things like Atlantis and Hollow Moon and all of these things. And he said, here is someone with a mind just so tuned for curiosity and fascination. And yet, because of a kind of bum steer, they've ended up looking at all this kind of, you know, gobbledygook. And yet, if we can find a way of, of steering people to the, the, the truly fascinating evidence-based stories, and, and, hope, and I know that's, you know, what all three of you spend a lot of time doing. So let's start off with, today we're going to talk about the search for, for extraterrestrial life. Um, and I thought, I want to start off with, with the, the Fermi paradox, which was, and I'll ask all of you to have your take on this, but it's basically the, the idea which is, if other intelligent life exists within our universe, why haven't they come? Why aren't they here? Why have they decided not to visit us? Who would like to start on that? Well, I'll start because I love the Fermi paradox. So, so, so Enrico Fermi, as a particle physicist, has subatomic particles named after him. But in 1954, he has this conversation with his colleagues, and, and it's really upsetting him. He's thinking, uh, why, you know, is there life in the universe other than us? And he sits down at lunch and he suddenly says, where is everybody? Where are all these aliens? Because we live in a, in a galaxy, not a universe, a galaxy of two to 400 billion stars, so at least that many planets. So why aren't they all out there? Why aren't they all out there ringing us up? And, but there's some great explanations for it. One is we uh, end up destroying ourselves before we develop the capacity to communicate with other cultures. There's some really wacky ones like, actually, um, there is an entire intergalactic community out there, but they think we're such a bunch of screw-ups that they project this hologram of the universe as being empty so we don't go and spoil it, um, and, and, and on and on and on. But if you do the maths, if you do the maths and you think we live in a universe that's 13.7 billion years old, and we've been a civilization for about 10,000 years, and human evolution is you know, about sort of two, three million years old, then there should have been adequate time for an intergalactic civilization to have colonized all the space between stars in our, in our galaxy. And, and so that question stands, why is it all silent out there? Susie, the, you know, the, the great silence that sometimes go, what, do you have a take on that of, of, of why, if there is intelligent life, why have we not met them? Yeah, it's a really good question, isn't it? It's a question that lots of us think about all the time. We have something called the Drake Equation, which is similar to what you just described, which kind of puts some statistics associated with what's the probability of life, what's the probability it was able to communicate, what's the probability, all of these types of things. And you come up with the conclusion that, yeah, life happens somewhere else. What I think is interesting is that I talk to a lot of kids these days. I go into schools, I talk to kids, and I say to kids, put up your hand if you think there are aliens. And almost every child raises their hand. They're like, yeah, they're out there, they're green and slimy or whatever. And you talk to adults and they just go, oh, I don't think so really. Uh, it's just really interesting to see like, what happens to us between being a little kid and being convinced, even though you don't really understand the science, to adults who kind of just sit there and don't like to think about it anymore. I think that's an interesting question really. Hello? That literally happened just outside the tent, just oh. behind her. The author, Kate <laughs> Williams, is here. And her, we were, I said we were doing something on aliens and her little daughter stuck her hand up. I think aliens yeah. exist, exactly like that, yeah. straight off. Yeah, yeah. What about, I mean, the, the, of course, part of it is the, the enormous distances that we're, that we're talking about and the ability. And there is a, sometimes a thought that maybe intelligent life, again, all of this is conjecture, of course, because we have so, so little to, to base on, but there is intelligent life across the universe. But the idea that it will pop up at the same time and be able to communicate. So, so what we might be seeing, you know, every civilization that exists, maybe there will become a point where the other civilization finds the embers of that or another civilization arrives just before that planet has reached the point 
of replication to the point of so life. you're totally right. We were talking about our galaxy, and our galaxy is a slightly different situation. Think about the universe, okay, then the scales are so massive that you can begin to think about, oh, maybe the time isn't right, maybe they haven't had time for their signal to get to us. But if we talk about our galaxy, that's less likely to be the, the answer, actually, I think. Um, Kevin, what about the, the Drake equation? How do you feel? Now, I know that's something that you, you, you'd wanted to do a documentary, in fact, about the Drake equation, which is a... Can, can you run, for those who don't know about the Drake equation, could you explain a little bit about how that sums up what we might believe is required for there to be life beyond us? So the Drake equation uh, was developed by Frank Drake and his group. It's actually called the Green Bank Equation because there's many scientists involved. And so these things that we talk about that's like pub chat, which is, are there aliens, aren't there aliens? I think there are. I think Dave's an alien. All that sort of stuff. Scientists have laid down sort of numerically. And so if you wanted to ask yourself, you know, how many people listen to Radio 1 in the morning, you could do it. You could get an estimate because you think, well, how many people are driving to work? How many of those people have radios? How many of those radios are tuned into Radio 1? How many people are actually listening? And that's what you do with the Drake equation. You say, how many stars are there out there? How many stars are like our star? How many of those stars like our star with planets around them? How many of those planets are like our planet? And then how many of those planets does life arise on and then become intelligent and then start communicating? But here's the thing about the Drake Equation. When they developed it in 1961, they started, they, they realized that there should be intelligent life out there. And Drake, I've, been, I've interviewed Frank Drake for a program. And he said when they started turning their telescopes, because this is the first time they started to turn telescopes up to the stars and to listen for life. They said they thought there'd be life everywhere. They thought the first star they fixed on would have signals, and then it was silent. And then they moved on, and they looked at the next star, and it was silent, and they moved on. And then for the next 50 years, it was silence, and, and it's unexpected. It should be there, and it really isn't clear to anyone why it's so silent. But there is a big probability thing here in that, say... Well, I don't know, you could be an optimist or a pessimist about this, but our current technological civilization, 5,000 years maybe before somebody manages to screw it all up or there's a nuclear bomb or a giant meteorite or something, 5,000 years is a tiny, tiny slice of all the possibilities in the universe. And like you said, if you don't line up, you would never know. And also, the, 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 the speed of light thing means you've also got a problem with communicating, right? Because that light could have set off before they blew themselves up with a nuclear bomb. Almost definitely, yeah. Almost definitely it would have, given the, t the scales involved, they'll all be gone before the signal gets to us. So even if we detect them, it doesn't mean they're there now. It means that thousands of years ago, tens, hundreds, millions of years ago, they were there. Have any... Oh, sorry, Kevin, yes. No, but, but, you know, like, until recently, I thought like you did, which is life in the universe is rare. So it's like, it would be like living in a world if there were only 100 people. So you'd never be, you're never alone, truly, but you'd always feel lonely because you'd never meet those other 99 people if they were spread evenly throughout the world. But recently, I, you know, I thought about it. So our galaxy is 100,000 light years across. So you ride on a beam of light at 186,000 miles per second, and it takes you 100,000 years to cross it, which is it's hard to imagine. But here's the, and, and, and it's impossible to tra travel at or even close to the speed of light. So you think, well, no one can get anywhere, so of course, of course we're never gonna meet any aliens. But actually, you don't need to go fast. You just need to be sufficiently advanced and have a lot of time. And there's been a lot of time. I mean, 13.8 billion years. So you don't need that long. You need about 50 million years to colonize the galaxy. So where are they? 
Where, I mean, where are they? <laughs> but I don't want... Would it not be more fun? I've always, people always talk about aliens as though they have to be little things with green, you know, little green men. And actually, I'm far more interested in the type of life that is doing other things. It's being giant squid under a cosmic, you know, an ocean somewhere on a, a moon of some massive planet somewhere else. Or it's um, re got really interesting chemistry. And yes, it's not as exciting because you can't either have a war with it or eat it. But... It's, it wouldn't it be interesting? Like, I'm more interested in that. I'm less interested in the aliens and much more interested in the life as a concept. Like, what? Because the thing we don't know is we only way of, we know you know one way, right? That life has ever existed. And even just finding one other chemistry actually would be dramatically exciting to everyone who isn't a filmmaker. So you, I mean, as someone who is, you know, an expert on the oceans, that's, I presume, as you were just saying there, we still don't know. Is it still 80% roughly that we don't... Depends how you define unexplored, but a lot of it. But the thing is, if you want alien life, here's a tip for you. Don't go and hang out with SETI and point telescopes at the sky. Get a pair of snorkeling goggles and a snorkel and just scoot around a coral reef until you find an octopus. You will not find anything weird that they've got independently involved intelligence. They've evolved to live in a different physical state with this much denser fluid around them um, they've got an entire they've got three hearts they've got an entirely different nervous system they are intelligent creatures they're curious like if you, and when they hunt they change color they can see polarized light they're awesome right don't the seti very nice seti right go and find an octopus so that much more fun brian cox with the only things that he won't eat because uh, he doesn't care about foie gras or anything like that. He won't eat an octopus because uh, once he had a reasonably flirtatious conversation with one in the ocean <laughs> as it moved all of its you know, independent limbs. And he was like, I can't eat calamari. I can eat a duck that's exploded. Um, the, there's an when you mention there about the oceans, that's another thing which I think is interesting, which is there is a level of intelligence, of, of, uh, I would say great intelligence within, you know, for instance, you know, dolphins would be a good, and, and, and you know, whales generally, and we don't know how to communicate with them. So is that part of the issue as well, which is we have not found a system of being able to communicate with creatures that have evolved on the same planet as us. So how do we work out the language you know, something like the plaque on Pioneer or the Golden Record. We think, oh, we've made that. That's, that, that is universal, but it's not, is it? It's still very terrestrial as a communication device. I think one of the things that we're trying to do is think about what kind of signals that we could get to tell us about planets that would then um, be able to evolve into planets that could have life. So if we look at planets, we're looking at planets around other stars all the time. We found over 4,000 planets orbiting other stars elsewhere in the universe. And... Um, using the knowledge that we have about how life evolved on the Earth, we're able to look at signals from those planets and get an idea about whether they would be suitable. So for example, the Earth has a magnetic field. It's very protective of our environment. It helps us keep our atmosphere, protects us from radiation. If we can detect a magnetic field on one of those planets, that's a really big hint to us that conditions there might be suitable. It might be able to keep an atmosphere. It might be able to have a radiation environment that might be suitable for life. But again, what we're doing is projecting our life onto that planet without really thinking about the fact that actually that life could be very different and maybe it could be radiation hardened in some way. But there is a principle. So the, there are some interesting ideas that we think have to sit at the base of all life, right? Which is the idea of equilibrium. Because what we are all doing at the moment is messing up what the, the universe's plan, which is to increase entropy, you know, to slowly slide into disorganization. And living creatures fight against that, right? They use energy in, in order to almost to steal organization from the, from the 
banks of the universe. And so that was an early idea back in the 20s or 30s, that you could look for planets that weren't doing the right thing. They didn't have the right chemistry that had all wound down. They were up to something. And I, I don't know, well, you probably know more about the chemistry than me. Well, 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 actually, I wanted to come back to this idea of how we communicate, because there's this lovely essay by the science fiction author Brian Aldiss about the difference between intelligence and what he called extelligence. And he said that it is possible that dolphins, cetacean life is the most intelligent life on the surface of the planet. But what it can't do that we can do is take its intelligence and encode it in an external form so they can hand it on and make progress over generations. So the dolphins are very clever and swimming around, but they can never actually ever make any real mechanical or industrial progress, whereas we can do that. And, um, and so he said that that that's, maybe that's the problem, that the universe is teeming with life that is intelligent but not necessarily extelligent. That is, it can't record its, its knowledge for future generations to make progress. And so I, I love that idea, actually. And also, there's another thing to say, which is that our planet is, is quite close to the sun. It, it's sort of right on the edge of being close enough to the sun to be warm enough for us to have liquid water on the surface, but not so far away that we're just an ice ball. Um, but actually, most planets are probably more, mostly covered in water, the, the water-bearing planets. So most alien planets are probably covered with a lot of water, and life on most alien planets, if it is intelligence, probably is more dolphin and squid-like than it is like us, and possibly can't make advanced technology. But wasn't it, it was a Douglas Adams quote, wasn't it, that he said that um, dolphins and humans, the second and third most intelligent life forms on Earth, um, the humans thought they were more intelligent than dolphins because the humans had invented the wheel, machines, rockets and so on, and all the dolphins had ever done is have fun and muck about in the ocean, and the dolphins thought they were more intelligent than humans for exactly the same reason. So there's, a, there's an assumption that intelligent life has to make machines, and that's a question about whether that's true. <laughs> What about, before we, in fact, we can, we can go back a little bit, before, we've been talking about intelligent life, but life itself on planets, and we have seen every now and again, there are certain examples that are found, uh, and there's a hope that somehow that shows something which is, you know, organic molecules, some kind of hint. Susie, what is the, what have we seen which has at least begun to suggest the possibility. Is there anything yet? Yeah, definitely. So there's a few things that we're doing at the moment. Um, the thing I'd like to focus on first is looking at the, the moons of the giant planets. So we've already looked at several of these moons. Um, the most famous example is Enceladus, so flying Cassini through plumes that came up through the cracks of ice in, uh, that, that uncover uh, Enceladus. And there are plumes of water that are coming up through these cracks. And if you fly a spacecraft through that and you measure what you observe, you see um, some of the primitive building blocks that would have first been present at deep ocean vents on the Earth where life originated. So you see hydrocarbons, you see complex, you see methane, you see hydrogen, you see silicon nanoparticles. All of these things suggest that similar processes are happening at the bottom of the oceans on Enceladus as happened on the bottom of our ocean with these ocean, deep ocean vents. And of course, that's where we believe that life started. So we haven't found aliens flying out of the cracks yet. But what we've seen is evidence that similar processes are happening there. Um, and we see that actually several of these moons show similar characteristics. So several of Saturn's moons show similar characteristics. We've got Titan, we're interested in Titan, might have lakes on Titan. And also Europa, Jupiter's moon Europa. We're sending a mission specifically there to analyze Europa and to try to understand exactly the same thing. Could there, are there any signatures of life that we can see? Even if it's only microbial life, which we suspect may have formed at the, at the, the bottom of the oceans here. 
There was, but there's, there are other techniques, aren't there? Because there, there is now, there, there is a strong, and I find this incredible. There's a, um, there's a, there are telescopes on Hawaii that look out um, at the sky. There's one that looks for um, the moment when a planet, an exoplanet, passes in front of its star, and the, just the thin sliver of the atmosphere, some of the star's light comes through it, and it's changed by the chemistry. And the that's now starting to become accurate enough that you might be able to see spectra. I mean, they're very crude at the moment, but you can get a hint of the chemistry. And that's one of the ways, that's where you start looking for this disequilibrium. Um, and it's still got a way to go, but they would, you know, it's, it's progress is, you could potentially see, if not life, you could see, again, this thing that's not quite right, something active is going on that could be life. You could definitely see that. So, um, but when you talk about what evidence we have at the moment, that's why Mars is so important. So that, that's why Mars is the prize. Because life on this planet arose between 3.6 and 4 giga year ago. So 3.6 and 4 billion years ago, probably about 3.8 billion years ago. And if you wind the clock of our solar system back that far, Mars certainly seemed to have had standing bodies of water for geologically significant periods of time. Now, on Earth, we know that wherever you have liquid water and an energy source, you have life. So all the conditions should have been there around about the same time that life arose on this planet for life to arise. Now, when life arose on Earth, it turned up in an instant. So, so the surface of the Earth was being bombarded until about 3.8 billion years ago. And, and as soon as it solidified and there was water around, life turns up out of the blue. Now, that's either a huge cosmic coincidence or it means wherever the conditions for life exist, life turns up really quickly. So the reason that Mars is so important is because if you go there and you find out that life exists now or has ever existed, even if it's only a few bugs that were, existed 3.5, 3.6 billion years ago and then were extinct, it means that when you look into the sky at night in a clear night at the starscape above you, you are looking at a jungle teeming with life. If you go to Mars and there has never, ever been life there, you look up at the sky and it's a desert in which we are a single oasis. So Mars, at least for the medium term, is everything. That's really nicely put, actually. We have a mission at Mars at the moment called InSight. So I'm not sure how many of you have been learning about the InSight rover, but it's there and it's looking for the interior of Mars because we think that Mars's magnetic fields look much like the Earth's until about four billion years ago, and then it switched off. Mars lost its global magnetic field. It has remnant crustal pockets of field, but nothing that protects us against radiation, nothing that could protect the atmosphere, nothing that could protect any water that was on the surface, and from there on in, everything starts to go horribly wrong um, on Mars in terms of conditions for life. So the question is, why did that field switch off? And actually, this, this um, entire mission is designed to help us understand, is the inside of Mars liquid? Is it solid? Is it part liquid, part solid? Um, and, you know, essentially what happened, so we can try to understand what happened to Mars. But I got a question occurred to me as you were talking about that, the idea that life emerges as soon as it's possible. In that case, why has life only arisen once on the planet? Because our planet has had lots of places with enough energy and all the chemistry, but we still only know one form of life. Is that evidence that it might, be, it might just have been a lucky coincidence? It just occurred to me when you were talking. Yeah, I'm really upset that that occurred to you while we were talking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not entirely sure I know the answer to that. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I was going to make something up. I don't know. But I was, I'll make something up instead because I've got. It doesn't have any risk for my career because I'm in the arts. But um, I just wonder if, is it that once life exists, exists, 
even if something else, another form of life begins, the fact that it is always submerged, it is always ultimately that life, that which has the head start, will mean that the other life has, is unable to ever develop to any level at all to be traceable from a very, very early stage. Could that be possible? And that is possible, and that's one of the explanations for the Fermi paradox. The reason that you don't see anything is because the most advanced civilization in the universe goes around Donald Trumping everything and wiping it out. Um, I wanted to also get back onto... I don't know if any of you have found this, but is it also problematic because we still have a problem with defining life? You know, in terms of on the planet Earth, if you ever, you know, it's a show that we've done about once every three series because we never get anywhere near an answer on Infinite Monkey Cage, which is that point a planet goes from non-life to life. Now, would that change in any way the way that we are able to explore and question the other objects in the universe and, and their both potential for life or possibility that life is on them? What are you looking at me for? I, I, so so, so it, it's the whole life gym and not as we know it thing, isn't it? And it is extraordinarily difficult to understand what are the necessary prerequisites of an organism that you can say, that's alive and that's dead. And so it's really interesting because when you study stars um, and you look at how dynamic a star is, it has many, many of the properties that you would expect of a living entity, right? So, so it has a system of production of energy. You could say that it takes fuel and it respires in a certain way. You know, you can say that they grow, they have a lifetime, they live, they die, they're born. There are stellar nurseries where you have young stars. But they're not a lot. We don't think, we think of them as physical objects. So where, at what point does someone say, that's life, that's not life? And so there is that possibility. And again, this is another explanation of the Fermi paradox, is that life is out there, but it's so alien that we are unable to recognize it as such. But also timescales is part of that, isn't it? Because, you know, so oceanographer here. Um, but the Greenland shark, for example, it's a type of shark, lives to 450 years old, basically because it's cold in the deep ocean where it lives. And because it's cold, just met metabolism happens more slowly. And so a shark on the surface would basically think it was a statue, more or less, you know, simplifying slightly. But the shark down there is getting on with it just fine. It's just happening very slowly. And I feel that we assume that life has to exist on our spatial scales and our time scales. But that's just conceited, really. It's like looking out at um, you know, a desert environment or a big mountain and think it's not changing. But if you watched it over a seasonal cycle, it's doing stuff all the time. And I think it's very hard, not probably because of sci-fi films, not to just assume that an alien's going to walk up to us. We might meet an alien, and it'll take us 500 years to have a conversation with it. That, I mean, why not, right? But is, so, again, that, that seems to be one of the biggest problems, which is, as we have such, you know, here is a very specific example of life on a, on a planet. Susie, what are the exercises? Is it even possible, the idea of thinking so laterally that you are able to keep imagining the different scenarios of which life might both exist in and what life itself might be. How do you do that? I think that most of us just extend what we see as life here on Earth and search for that. I think that's what we're doing at the moment. Especially if we're thinking about in our solar system, we're thinking about, you know, how did life form? How was all the water delivered to the planets? You know, maybe there was um, some, some similar mechanism that happened on the other planets. We're really just looking for the same thing. And so all of our projections about our understanding of, of life, certainly this is what I think, get projected and we say, not possible, definitely not, that water's too salty, that lake is too far underground, that, that can't happen. So, 
certainly in the things that we're building, for example, looking for life on Mars, which is something that we're doing. We're looking for uh, extremophiles, which are just bacteria that evolved to survive in extreme environments. We're looking for those on Mars. People like me, we go to the mountains and we collect samples of these bacteria. We bring them back to the lab and we test them with our instruments. If this existed on Mars, would we find it? But the basic premise there is that whatever's on Mars is similar to what we're finding here on the Earth. And that is a fundamental flaw in certainly what I'm doing. But, but I mean, it's interesting that you bring up communication there, because I think that is key, because we're out there listening for signs of life. We're hoping that someone's going to communicate with us and they've got enough technology to do so. But as someone explained to me, you know, can you imagine you, know, you taking a CD-ROM of the Encyclopedia Britannica back to the 18th century and tapping someone on the shoulder and going, there you go, mate, that's everything you need to know, and then walking off? It just, and, and that's, I guess, part of the problem with trying to communicate with civilizations that might be less advanced than us or more advanced than us. Uh, and that may be a big part of the problem why we've never discovered anything. Shouldn't we also be thinking slightly carefully about whether we want to communicate with the ones that are way, way ahead of us? You know, thinking about your idea about the coming well, to everyone. Well, the so-called deadly probe hypothesis, which is that an advanced civilization will work out that every other civilization is as belligerent and xenophobic as it is, <laughs> and therefore goes and gets in first mover advantage by blowing people up, is a real... And, and so the, the follow-up to that is that they stop communicating because they're worried that that will bring down, you know, uh, extermination on them. So there's lots of funky hypotheses for it. Helen, what about, what are for you the, in, in the last few decades the most interesting examples of life forms that we found on, on Earth which have made us question the possibilities? I mean, it's stromolites. Is it stromolites? Yeah, stromolites, uh, stromatolites. So stromatolites are really interesting things just because they are really slow. You know, they're very, very early form of life, very slow, still exist on the north coast of Australia. But um, the most obvious example is probably they dug down into Antarctica, like a long way. So there's these submerged, like there's still a debate. I mean, this is actually why it's a debate. So Antarctica has a huge, very, very thick layer of ice on it. Um, but we know that within that ice, there are bodies of liquid water. And so there have been efforts to drill down into those lakes to see if there's life there. Now, you have to do that very carefully because obviously you risk contaminating them. On, there's no good taking life down with you and then saying, oh, we've found life. Um, so the last attempt didn't quite succeed. The ice drill froze in, I think, before they quite got there. But even, so, the, so the, that's, that's the place which would cause the next big question. But even then, on the, in the ice on the way down, they have found life in those sorts of very extreme environments. And also uh, lakes, which have very extreme chemistries. Um, where, you know, all conventional life says, you know, if you want to kill something, you cover it with salt, you put, you know, strong chemicals on it. And then there's these things quite living, like, you know, the sort of um, in Yosemite around the uh, geysers, where there's very, a lot of dissolved minerals coming out of solution, very extreme temperatures. You see these colored rings of algae which thrive in those conditions. So basically, it's everywhere we look. It's very hard to, it's very hard to kill life completely. So, yeah, and, then we, and we keep finding them. We keep finding these extreme chemistries, but they are all based on the chemistry of our bodies. Like, for all the infinite variety of life on Earth, it's, and there are some pretty funny microbes out there, but they all still have the same kind of DNA, which is such a powerful thing. It's really hard to appreciate. But so they're unlike us, but fundamentally, they are the same life as us. That's what worries me when you say it's very, very difficult to kill all life. And I think with our current political crop, they would, if they heard this, see that as a challenge. And, um, but I just... Don't give them ideas. <laughs> do, Susie, do you feel there's, you know, again, illustrations we've seen on Earth in, in, in terms of, uh, which have helped expand in terms of ideas of astrobiology? 
Certainly, yeah. So we've done lots of experiments recently by thinking about how, how basic organisms might survive in space. And so we've shown that there are types of organisms like tardigrades, for example, they can survive extended periods in space where, you know, humans uh, receive uh, radiation doses that would wipe us out fairly rapidly. And these things clearly don't, they, they, they shut down and, and when you put them in good conditions again, off they go again. So we have seen things can survive in space. We have that, that information. And then we're taking, as I mentioned earlier, samples around the Earth of these really extreme organisms, some of which you mentioned. Uh, and and that's, what we're, that's what we're looking for, essentially. So um, that's the thought. But if you think about Mars, the idea is they must be under the surface somewhere. So these things, the radiation environment is severe on the surface. Maybe they're under the surface. So we're developing things like um, uh, devices to smash open rocks. So we, we break open rocks. We're also having um, spacecraft uh, landers that drill down. So we're looking inside rocks. We're looking inside under the surface to see if these organisms somehow survived in, the, in those conditions. I mean, when we talk about astrobiology, which is really extremophile biology, what, what are the limits of life? How extreme can conditions be before life is unable to thrive? It's kind of encouraging and disheartening at the same time because, yes, we know of bacteria that can live quite well in boiling water. You sit there, you boil your water in the campsite, you think, that's it, I've killed everything. As news, um, there's lots of stuff that can survive that. There's lots of stuff that can survive very salty environments, very acid environments. But still for all of that, my, my colleague Charles Coquel, who is an astrobiologist in Edinburgh, he talks about the biosphere. You know, we talk about the biosphere, all, all of this around the earth that we live in. He says, it's not a sphere. A sphere makes it sound like it's a three-dimensional thing. He says, if you look at the earth from space and you, through that limb of atmosphere you can see, and you ask yourself, how much of the atmosphere can you live in? It basically goes from about a kilometer down into the oceans in terms of life, and about nine kilometers up to the summit of Everest. So, so in that band of 10 kilometers around a planet that's a couple of thousand kilometers in radius is this sliver where all life that we know in the entire universe lives. And he says, it's not a biosphere, it's a biofilm and it's smeared around the surface of our planet. And that's all we've got, so you better bloody look after it. It's a bio-Malteser. But, the, but that was, it's interesting how quickly ideas change though, because remember, it's only 40 years since deep sea smokers were discovered. And that was, because that was the view. And then you find these deep sea smokers, and they, the geologists, you know, they, sent the, they didn't send the biologists to look on the bottom, they, they sent the geologists, because obviously there was rock, that'll keep them quiet. And, and that was a mind-blowing moment. If you read the books about coming, you know, in the depths of the ocean, there is no light for kilometers above you. And suddenly there is thing which is crawling with crabs and crustaceans. And that, you know, that is, that, that was probably the, I think it might be the closest moment anyone, you know, within the generations outsiders will come to discovering alien life because it wasn't supposed to be there. And yet look how quickly we take it for granted. You know, everyone just assumes, oh, black smokers, yes, hoff crabs. Well, they, everyone loves them. But, you know, just there it is. We all, we switch our mindset so quickly. So maybe we'll discover aliens and, you know, two years later we'll be phoning them up for a chat and everyone will have forgotten that it's a big deal. How do you, by the way, that when you were talking about that film, there's a beautiful Buckminster Fuller in one of his essays, and he wrote many, many wonderful essays and books. He talked about taking a, a ball bearing one inch in diameter, and he says if you breathe on it very briefly there, you will have the, the thickness of that film, the, the residue of your breath, is as thick as all the organic life on the planet Earth. And I think that's such a simple exercise, again, to just see it, 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 its rarity and the fact just such a, you know, such a thin carapace. Um, I wanted to quickly just also talk about what about the times where we thought we found 
evidence. And I, I was thinking, for instance, of you know the pulsar pioneer Jocelyn Bell Burnell. That when when she first when they first got signals for that, they called it, it was it LGM Little Green Man signal. They thought, oh, maybe this, this signal seems to be so specific that it must be created. So, do you have any favourites in terms of those those brief moments? I, I have one actually. I mean, it might be apocryphal. I'm sure many of you have heard it before. But in the early days of Jodrell Bank, they um, were getting signals, and the signals were kind of sporadic. So it wasn't like they were periodic. But there was a sporadic signals that they were detecting, and people really began hunting for the source of these signals. And um, very serious people began, you know, hunting it down, and, and, and they couldn't they couldn't understand where these signals were coming from. And you know, maybe it's out there, maybe it's you know, signals out there coming to us through the dishes. Anyway, a lot of time and money was spent hunting for this, and it was eventually discovered that there was a microwave that, that the um, one of the grounds people was using to heat up his lunch, <laughs> and it was a leaky microwave, and it was giving off microwaves, and they get detected, and, and there you go. So um, I think that's my favourite story of the finding of aliens, actually. Well, I mean, uh, when, when it comes to finding aliens, I actually always find it amazing how recently in history we just assumed they were everywhere. Um, so. Uh, I spoke to the guy who was in charge of the camera on Mariner 4, which is the first probe to fly past another planet and take photos. So Mariner 4 in 1964 flies by Mars, flies by Mars and takes a few photos. And they said back then they were genuinely expecting to see civilization on the surface, you know, that extension of Percival Lowell's uh, idea that the big lines, straight lines on Mars were canals of civilization. And they were absolutely devastated to see this desert. Because in 64 they thought this is going to be our first, you know, going around to the neighbors for a cup of sugar thing. And, 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 and it didn't work that way. The same the same's happened over and over again with Venus. We thought the same would be true. We, we hoped, even 50 years ago, so this is the 50th anniversary today of the first landing on the moon. What did we do with Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins when they came home? We stuck them in quarantine. Why? Because we thought maybe, maybe there's life on the moon. And now we've been looking for so long. And we, we there's this weird cosmic sense of loneliness we have as a, as a civilization, as a species. And we're looking really hard, and everywhere we look, we're not finding it. And I find that really interesting, you know, just philosophically, what is it that drives us to want to find something that isn't vaguely similar to us in the universe? I was just saying, so there's um, an exhibition that's just opened at the National Maritime Museum in, in London, and it's a fabulous exhibition on the, on the moon, but there is a thing in there about the great moon hoax, and this was, I think, I'm not quite sure how far back it was, it might have been the 30s, um, where someone drew all these amazing drawings of what they thought life on the moon was like, and apparently it went quite a long way, it was like the spaghetti on the trees thing in the 60s, um, because, but the reason it worked is because people want to believe, they want to believe that there's something there. It's, they're very resistant to the idea there's not. And, and, it's a, and it feels very, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical about us ever meeting alien life that isn't, you know, that's off this planet. But I do feel like a proper party pooper because nobody wants to hear that. Leave her in the corner, don't talk to her. She's got boring ideas. You know, there's this people, they, they want it. Well, there's, I think Arthur C. Clarke, said was it that uh, either uh, the universe is actually teeming with intelligent life or we are the only intelligent life that exists in it and either idea is terrifying um, that sense of how do you feel it might psychologically change an intelligent species to know there is because I mean when you're talking about what worries me is we've had a habit when we've been exploring the earth of when we found a new group of human beings we do seem to have a habit of committing genocide and that our first reaction is very often not to offer a hand and say, let's find out about your culture, it's to destroy it. So I just wonder, if, if we do, if, if there is that possibility of intelligent life, 
from each one of you, how do you feel human beings, human society would react to that? So, so I mean, I'm hopeful that there is such thing as moral evolution. And we talked a little before this show about Arthur C. Clarke, and he seemed to believe in that. His iterations in, in his stories of alien life were always of a benevolent, advanced civilization. You know, they weren't this thing that was coming out of the sky and wiping you out. And, and there's an interesting essay by Carl Sagan uh, about how if we, he, he saw this as the adolescence of humanity, this period now, where we develop nuclear power and we have the capacity to advance, but we also have the capacity to self-annihilate. And he said, if we can survive our self-destructive adolescence, then the future is very bright. So I hope that if you ever run into an advanced alien civilization, they're well past their adolescence, and they have that sort of, you know, they're going to grandfather you into the sort of cosmic community. Because if they have survived the things that we have survived as species, then you know, you would hope that they're going to come with a helping hand rather than a, you know, a, 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 a cosmic ballistic missile. Susie? Actually, what we are doing at the moment is thinking quite carefully about when we do go to other planets, decontaminating, make sure none of our instruments have any bacteria from the Earth on them, being very careful about how we approach the other planets so that what we don't do is spread our own life throughout the rest of the solar system and, and wipe out what may exist there already. A little bit like if you think about you know, the Spanish invading South America and bringing new disease in it and it wipes everything out. So although we have no evidence that there's life there, we are being quite careful about the way that we explore to try to preserve what's there if it is very primitive and make sure that we don't destroy it. That's quite an interesting because it, it could become a tag match of panspermia. You know, one of those ideas where I think Francis Crick was very keen on panspermia wasn't he which is you know the idea that life didn't actually begin on this planet it came from somewhere else which unfortunately doesn't answer that many questions but the idea that it's this constant game of tag yeah. um helen i i hope that it brings a bit i what i want is if we meet another civilization i want it to be slightly more advanced than us i'm with kevin on the wanting one that's more advanced but because i think the thing that could be the best outcome for us on earth is that it's slightly more advanced and so our first response is to listen instead of to shout and I think that would be very good for us as a, as a, as a species to remember that we can learn more when we're, when we're shut up, when we shut up. And, and that's, so, so I think, I don't know whether it would do them any good, but I think it would do us a lot of good. Because just the humility of there, there are different ways of doing things. Instead of telling them, we listen. I think that, that, that's, that's my most optimistic hope and that we learn rather than trying to be colonial about it, basically. Final question, which is, if you were now designing a plaque or a record to send into space as a, an, an invitation to say, we are fascinating, we are interesting, and it's such an interesting... The Pioneer plaque, which I'm sure you're very aware of, to me, it, again, shows both the ambition of human beings and the short-sightedness, which is in the original version of it, the uh, woman on it did actually have genitals, and then they decided that that was just way too racy... And so they were raised, which I think, show, again, shows this clash of ideologies inside of her head. But what would you place on whatever was being sent up in the hope that it would be uh, picked okay, up? Okay, well, I, I think, you know, language is a tough one. We've talked a lot about language. If you have something in a language, there's no idea whether they would understand it. But one language that is universal is mathematics. And so they have been thinking about things like, you know, pi, a fundamental number, for example, e, another fundamental number. Maybe we can communicate through through mathematics rather than through language, because that does seem to be universal. So I, it's really hard, isn't it? There's an interesting story about how they took... So, so, you know, this is the pioneer plaque, isn't it? And, and um, 
and how would you communicate with a civilization that doesn't have the same access to language as you what your planet was like? And then years, a, dec a couple of decades later, one of the professors at Cornell, I think, gave it to his postdoctoral students who couldn't work out what the plaque meant. So, so, <laughs> so, you're, so, so, so your chances of it doing aliens is pretty bad. But there's a lovely thing. Is it Voyager or a pioneer that has the record on it? Is it, is it Voyager has Voyager. Record. So what I think is interesting, and it's a nice pub consideration for all of you, is what sounds you would put on a record that would define your planet. So on the, on, on the Voyager record is the sound of waves crashing on beaches, is the sound of whale song, is the sound of rain falling on rainforests. They're all very beautiful and very evocative. And actually that's what I ask myself, what sounds would you put in? That's, a, that's still one of my favorite things is that uh, the UN Secretary General of, of the time, there's a message from him saying, please come and visit our planet. And unfortunately, it was Kurt Voldheim, who shortly afterwards f was found out to be a reasonably ardent Nazi. Um, uh, the Morrissey of his day. Um, Helen. If I wanted to send a message to the aliens about how wonderful and interesting and diverse Earth was, I would clearly put a big picture of an octopus. You really do love the octopus, don't you? They're amazing. You should read the books of H.P. Lovecraft. Some of them end up being a little bit evil. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for coming down. I hope you found this. These, these guys are fantastic. And, and you can you know, check on their other work as well. In fact, you can check on some of their work down in the, in, in the bookstore. I know that uh, Susie hasn't got round to writing a book yet, so she'll sign other people's books if you want. Um, but uh, Kevin's book's there, Helen's book's there, uh, my book's there, but it's really not anywhere near this topic. It's on neuroscience and creativity and other things, but I'll be talking about that tomorrow afternoon if you're around at about 1.45. Um, but can I say thank you very much, everyone, for coming down, and thank you very much to our fantastic panel, Kevin, Susie, Helen. Thank you very much for listening. CosmicShambles.com to check out everything else we've got going on as well as head to the Patreon uh, to support what we do. Please subscribe to the podcast. Please tell your friends about the podcast. Please give it five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Back soon with another new episode. In the meantime, have yourself a great week. And that is that. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.